Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church as we continue our mini-series in the book of Revelation. The mini-series is entitled Revitalize, Pray Like Your Life Depends on It. Revitalize, Pray Like Your Life Depends on It. And our goal in this mini-series is that we would pray that this revelation of Jesus Christ would so motivate us to pray because prayer is the engine of revitalization. Prayer is the engine of revitalization. We pray to our sovereign Lord Jesus Christ, who rules and reigns His creation. Today's message is entitled, Vision, Vision. So let's turn to Revelation 1, 9 to 20. Revelation chapter 1, last book in the Bible, verses 9 to verse 20. Let's read that text together. Revelation Chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool. Like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sword, two edged, a sharp two edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. Those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In this text, Jesus Christ gives us a vision of who He is. Jesus reveals Himself to us through the Apostle John. Remember, John is an old man at this point. He is on the island of Patmos, and he is to write down this vision of who Jesus is and give it to the seven churches. If you see the map on the screen, we talked about these seven churches last week. They are located in modern-day Turkey. There are the green highlighted names there. And he gives us those seven names, but those seven churches represent all the churches for all time. John is on this island of Patmos, just off the coast. This is an island that the Romans used to guard criminals. What was John's crime? He preached the word of God. 
He testified of Jesus Christ. And now this old man has lost everything. He's lost his home. He's now in exile on this island with a bunch of criminals. And it's the Lord's day. It's Sunday. And he's worshiping God. And the scripture says that the manifest presence of God came upon him. Look at that again in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of called Patmos on the count of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Verse 10. I was in the spirit. And he hears this voice behind me. And it is the voice of Jesus Christ. It is not just any voice. Look at the text. What's it say in verse 10? It says, it is a loud voice. It's going to be loud in heaven. Get used to it. In fact, this loud voice was like a trumpet. If you've ever heard a trumpet sound, it calls you to action. This Wording here reminds us of wording in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, when God began to speak His word to Moses, the Ten Commandments, it says in Exodus 19 that God's voice was like a trumpet. So what is that telling us? The revelation that John is about to write down and give to us is God's authoritative word. We have God's word, God Himself revealing to us who He is. He gives us a vision that we so desperately need. Vision is very important. I suffer from severe nearsightedness. And I have astigmatism. So if I didn't have glasses on, or in my case, contacts, I would not be able to distinguish what your face looks like. And as I get to be an old man, I now need glasses that I wear on top of my contacts when I do close-in work, like computer work or reading. Without a vision... I am useless. I can't drive. I can't do anything. But the scripture says that vision also is important for your life. It's important for my body, but it's important for your soul. The writer of Proverbs says this, without a vision, the people perish. What is vision? It's the hope for a preferable future. Without that, without hope, without a vision for something better, you have no hope. In fact, hope is one of the big three. Jesus said faith, hope, and love. Hope is so important. Vision is so important physically. Vision is important for our souls. So here's the question I have for you. What dominates your vision? What what fills your vision? What captures your vision? Is it yourself? Dollar signs? Fame? Inappropriate? Images on a screen, vengeance, anger. What what captures your vision? What is in your heart day in and day out? What is right there in front of you? Other people's opinions? Because what captures your vision fuels your heart. What fills your vision, what comes into the screen of your heart, that which is always in front of you, you're always thinking about, is going to fuel your heart. What fills your vision, fuels your heart. And what we have here in this text is God wonderfully giving us a vision of himself to replace those faulty visions that so often end up fueling our hearts in the wrong direction with the vision of Jesus, the pure one, the reigning one, the holy one, The blessed one. That's the point here. 
The people to whom John was writing this were people suffering like we are suffering. People disoriented like we can often be disoriented. People discouraged. People who are being persecuted for their faith. People whose lives weren't turning out exactly the way they thought. And Jesus says, let me fill your vision with me. So that I can fuel your heart with courage for me. As a matter of fact, that's the main point of this text, I believe. Christ fills our vision to fuel our courage. Christ fills our vision to fuel our courage. And what I find very comforting is this this old man on this island as an exile who had lost everything was more impressed with the vision of Jesus Christ than the vision of what was around him. I mean, he lost everything. And yet what he is motivated by, what captures his life is this vision of Jesus. Maybe you've lost everything or in the process of losing everything or everything is shaking or you're just disappointed with everything, beginning with yourself, that I pray that God would fill your vision with Jesus, that it would fuel your heart, That even though the reality of where you live is very important, and you're aware of that, what you write about, so to speak, is this vision of Christ, like John did. And thank God that he did write to us. John writes these words to us so that we are more aware of God's presence with us than we are of all the tribulations around us. Ultimately, I pray that Christ would fill our vision and fuel our faith to give us courage to live as his witnesses. That's why this book is here. Point one, Christ's vision. If you look at verses 12 and 13, you will see this vision of Jesus Christ. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. You see that term son of man, circle that word. This was Jesus' favorite designation for himself. Why the term son of man? Where does it come from? Well, it comes from the book of Daniel. Written some 500 years earlier. And in it, Daniel, a prophet, a Jewish prophet, receives a vision from God for his people. And in this vision, he gives his people hope. By the way, a people who were in exile in Babylon, modern-day Iraq. Their temple had been destroyed. Their land had been looted. They had been taken from their land in exile in Babylon. And God gives Daniel a vision to encourage his people. And he says, there is one coming, a son of man who will be the Messiah. He will restore the kingdom to Israel. He will be the one, the ruler of all, the the ancient of day. This is the one who's coming. And Daniel says, when he comes, he will restore all things. Jesus is that one. Jesus is the son of man. And Jesus loved to use that term of himself. If you read the gospels, it is Jesus' favorite designation for himself. Why? Because the term son of man includes suffering. You see, the Son of Man's rule, Jesus' rule, His kingship was veiled while He was on earth through His suffering. Jesus would always say, I am going to go to Jerusalem where I will suffer and I will be crucified and I will be, and then I will rise three days later. And it drove His followers crazy. 
In fact, one time, Peter, after just confessing that Jesus is God in the flesh, the Messiah, and he got that one right, and Jesus said, Peter, you got that right. Heaven and earth uh, declared that to you. Then with the next breath, after Jesus said, I'm going to go die in Jerusalem, Jesus, or Peter rebukes Jesus. And Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Because he didn't get it. And so often we don't get it. Because you see, Jesus' rule on this earth today is exercised by those who are a kingdom, but they exercise that rule through suffering. He was writing this to a suffering church. We read it as a suffering church, whether you suffer because of the sin in your heart, whether you suffer because of the sin of your neighbor, your spouse, your children, your, your, this culture, whether you suffer actually physically, hunger, whether you suffer persecution like they were, being in prison and some of them even losing their lives. But the suffering that we go through is actually part of Jesus' kinship on earth, and he's writing to encourage them. And it encourages us this morning. And what I love in verse 12, look where Jesus is. Excuse me, verse 13. Jesus is standing in the midst of the lampstands. Those are the golden lampstands discussed in verse 12. Those golden lampstands represent the church. They represent us. And Jesus stands in the midst of those golden lampstands. Jesus is standing in our midst right now by his spirit. He knows exactly what you're going through. And he stands in our midst as king and priest. So keep in your head this Son of Man. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill that. I am the Son of Man. I am the King, and I'm the priest. You see, Jesus comes to care for us in the midst of the golden lampstands. Think of lampstands that back then had these little jars that are filled with oil. They have a wick. They're lit. And so the, the, the person, the priest, has to make sure the wick is trimmed, has to make sure there's enough oil in the lampstand. Jesus is that priest. Jesus comes to take care of you, of me, of his church, to trim the wicks, to fill the jars with oil, to keep our light burning, because they were tempted back in 70-something AD to let their light stop burning because it hurt. It was hard. People in the church were sinning against them. They were sinning against each other. People in the culture thought they were fanatics and were beginning to imprison them and take away their land. The Roman Caesar said, I'm going to kill you if you don't bow your knee and call me Lord. They were discouraged. The light was starting to go out. I love this picture of the match there. It was starting to dim. They weren't speaking with their mouths the truths of Jesus because every time they did, they got hurt. Right? Like Padlov's dogs. If you keep beating them instead of giving them food, when they say something, what happens? You're tempted to stop saying it. I read a story yesterday in one of my missiology classes of what it's like for North Korean Christians. You know, there's a lot of Christians in North Korea. Did you know that Pyongyang was the capital of what God was doing in the Korean Peninsula before the Korean War. Did you know that? It was the, they called it the Jerusalem of the Korean Peninsula. You know, there's a lot of Christians in Korea. And there's a lot of them in prison. And the story was of this little girl, Eva, who was asked by the teacher to go home and get one book from your family and bring it so we can show the class. She went home and she rummaged around and she found her parents' Bible. 
and she brought it to school. And the teacher said, oh, great. They even gave Eva a little prize. And when she came home that day, her parents were gone and she never saw them again. Can you imagine? So if you're a parent in North Korea, you have a decision to make if you're a Christian. Do I share Jesus with my child knowing that it might end, put her in a, in a concentration camp? And that was the church back then. But listen, I don't have to live in North Korea to experience that, right? I'm looking at some of you right now. You're looking at me going, it looks like life's beating you down pretty good. I'm just tired. It was an hour and a half on the Palmetto yesterday. I'm in a beef with somebody on the internet. My boss has given me a hard time. My company just closed down. There's fraud going on in our community. My next door neighbor, I just found out, is, is just leaving their home. Their home looks like, it looks horrible. And they, you know, my property's going to get affected. My neighbor across the street, I think he might be doing something illegal there. I'm just tired. I'm not making the money that I would like to be making. My life's a failure. My kids aren't what I'd like them to be. My marriage is really rough right now. Put all that in a jar. You know what happens to us? Our light starts going down. And so Jesus comes and says, let me fill your vision. All that stuff's true, but let me fill your vision with me. With me. With me. I'm the priest. I'm the king. I walk around the golden lampstands. I light it. Oh, look, this one, this life, this family, this family with these children. Look, it's the light's going down. It needs more oil. I'm going to make sure that wick is nice and strong. I'm going to help them. I'm going to bless them. Look at this one over here. I'm going to provide for them. They're having trouble with their teenage child. Look at this one over here. These, these singles that are wrestling with questions that so many of us don't even know and aren't even wrestling with. Look at this one over here who feels discriminated against because of the color of their skin. And I so wrong. The rest of them are coming up with them and supporting them. Oh, look at this one over here who is just getting hammered at work. I'm going to trim that. I'm going to fill that. I'm going to bring all these little jars and lights together in the golden lampstand called the church and they're going to show it shining. Jesus is reflected in our eyes, in our lives. That's why he wrote this. And listen to the revelation of who he is. I love what David said. Put your seatbelts on right before the four announcements. Put your seatbelts on. This is like that Hulk, you know, at uh, Universal. It's the only roller coaster I've been on. Yes. I know some of you love them. I look at a roller coaster and I start throwing up, okay? But I said, Melinda, on her, I don't know, 13th or 14th birthday, I said, I'll go on one roller coaster. And I remember the Hulk, man. You got in. Oh, this is not going to be good. Jink, jink. I don't know. Jink, 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 jink. Like, ah! All right. So snap in right now. Ready? Jink. You ready? Here we go. All right. Verse, verse 14. So he's got the, the robe, this priestly, kingly garment. Verse 14. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool like snow. Okay, what does this represent, church? This represents the ancient days. This represents the one who has all wisdom. Right? Gray hair is an honor for any man. <laughs> because hopefully it represents this man has lived long enough and run into enough walls that he kind of knows where the door may be. The rest of you keep running into the wall. The rest of us are looking for the door. Okay? 
But in Jesus' case, it represents the one that knows all things. He knows your future. He knows your past. He knows how to lead and guide you. Jesus says, I am that one, the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, the one, I'm God, and I have all wisdom. Hopefully that encourages you, wherever you're at. Because I lack wisdom. The Bible says, ask of God, He'll give you wisdom. All right? Let's move on. His eyes were like a flame of fire. I love that. I love that. I, I, I love eyes. I, my, my wife has beautiful eyes. Truly beautiful eyes. My children. Just, I love, eyes just are alluring to me. But these are eyes that are a flame. A flame. What this represents is Jesus all-encompassing authority, his rule and his reign. And here's what it represents to you. He sees right in you, through you. Whatever mask you have on right now, whatever game you're playing with everybody else, Jesus doesn't play that game. Jesus sees beyond that game. What's amazing is having seen that game and seen right through you, he loves you. He died for you. Knowing exactly who you are. What a savior. No one dupes God. No one plays God. You can't do enough to please him. He sees right through you. But he loves you. And he rules over all. So worship him. Worship him. Next. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Think of Daniel. Think of these great statues that represent the evil empires of the day. Think about it later, not right now. Stay with me what I'm about to say. And Jesus has feet that are burnished bronze, these boots that come and crush his enemies. It, it, It represents his authority to defeat all his enemies. Now imagine you're huddled in a living room in modern-day Turkey, back then it was Asia Minor, and you're being persecuted because of Christianity by Rome. So, I mean, the police are coming with all the SWAT team. Think of the SWAT team times 10. They just roll up to your house. I've, by the way, some of my Cuban brothers have told me they've experienced this. One of my Cuban brothers remembers that they just rolled up to his house, grabbed him and his wife, and all the positions, threw him out of the house, and said, get out of here. That was happening to people. In the name of Caesar. And Jesus says, I'm the one that walks on Caesar. Now I know you're saying, that's nice, but it doesn't help me right now. But it does help you because eschatologically, ultimately, Jesus wins. You're going to have to suffer a little bit. In every war, there are casualties. In every game, there are injuries. You're going to sweat. But the one who wins is Jesus. His boots walk on that ruler, whoever that might be. He is the one who wins. That encourages me. Therefore, I don't have to fight to win. He wins. I rest in him. I fight to remain faithful to him. That's the fight, the fight of faith. Moving from those burnished bronze feet, we go to his voice. His voice was like the roar of many waters. I love loud voices. I have a loud voice. I love yelling and screaming and laughing. If you watch me drive down the road, I will just regularly just scream out things. You'd think I'm crazy. I remember driving by Kelso's house. I just drive by Kelso's house. You could ask my kids, and I would roll the window down. I would go, Kelso! He, he can't hear me. 
poor lady walking her dog. She's like, I'm just a loud, happy person. Until I'm not. But we'll talk about that one. But I love big voices. Ben's got a big voice. Ben, ben who led us in worship. Ben, I'm like you, man. Oftentimes, my voice precedes my body in any room. And then when I get in the room, I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have said that because they're doing this or that. I love it, Ben. He entered the, the men's prayer meeting Wednesday night that way. We heard his voice before we saw his body. Little did we know we were praying when he came in. <laughs> big booming voice. My son-in-law has a big booming voice. I love booming voices. Love the gifts of God. But this voice is booming like no voice you could ever imagine. This voice is like the voice of if you were standing at the bottom of Niagara Falls. If you were standing in, in the biggest river, if you were standing at the ocean when a hurricane has, has just made it crazy and it's crashing against the waters and the roar of many waters, that's the voice of God because this is the voice that fills the earth. Does it fill your vision this morning? Or are other voices filling your vision? There's a lot of voices. Some of you have more than others. <laughs> Whose voice is filling your ears right now? Is it the booming voice of the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, I pray it would be. I pray it would be. I pray it would be for me. He's the Almighty. That's what this booming voice speaks of. He's the ruler of all. He's the ruler of all. And then in verse 16... We move from this booming voice to what's in his right hand. Look at verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. This is now the Son of Man, whom Daniel says is the judge of all. This is the, the tongue that has the two-edged sword, which is the Word of God, which comes right down and discerns your heart. I don't, it does. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 on the screen. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No man can discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart like God can. We can get an inkling, we can sort of listen to your words and kind of figure out where you're coming from, but God himself, by his word, Jesus is the word, discerns down to the very core of who you really are. What really motivates you? Verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, oh, we're not. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes, those flaming eyes of him to whom you must give account. Jesus knew his church and he comes and walks in the midst of his church and he says, I see you. I see you as an individual. I see you as a church and I know exactly what you need to make you healthy again. And I died for you. So I love you so much. And in the next couple of chapters, next week, we're going to start pre preaching about each one of these churches. Next week, it's Ephesus. But Jesus comes as the one who loves us and died for us. But he makes us whole so that we can burn brightly for him. That's exciting, church. It can be a little uncomfortable sometimes, but it's exciting. It's what he's called us to. And then this vision of Jesus ends with an amazing picture. At the end of verse 16, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Shining in full strength. 
We see in verse 17 that this is now how John responds to this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's how every man or woman in the Bible responds when even an angel shows up from heaven, much less God. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. The Bible says that no one can see the face of God and live. John deserved to die as you and I deserve to die by looking into the face of God. His face is shining so strongly it's like the sun at its full strength. We go blind. We just had the eclipse, right? Everybody had those funny glasses? But seriously, you cannot look into the sun at its height, at its maximum strength and retain your sight. You will lose your sight. You will lose your life. But when Jesus comes, the one who died for us, He says, I will let you see me and live. I will let you see me and have sight. Actually, instead of losing your sight, you gain true sight. That's mercy. That's grace. We see that in 17. Jesus lays his right hand on John's shoulder. I'm imagining his shoulder. It may have been his head. I don't know. John's on the floor, so maybe it is his head. But Jesus, I could just imagine Jesus laying his right hand on Like when someone gets hurt. Listen to what he says to him. Let, may he say this to you this morning. Verse 17b. Fear not. Fear not. It says fear not because everybody's afraid right around now. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I live forevermore and have the keys to death and, and Hades. We get Christ's vision because of Christ's glory and Christ's grace. And that infuses us with Christ's courage. Point two. Christ, our courage. God is infusing His church and us with courage to be His witnesses when it's hard, when it's difficult, when it's hot and sweaty and, and, and it's, it's just not going well in my life and it's not going well in the church and it's not going well at home and it's not going well at work. And I'm like, oh Lord. And He says, fear not, Al. I am the first and the last. What does that mean? I am the first and the last. It means that Jesus is eternal. I'm the first. I'm the last. And I'm everything in between. It comes from Isaiah 41.4. On the screen. Speaking of Jesus. Who has performed and done this. Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first. And with the last, I am. Am he. Jesus encourages us as he encouraged John. And he's saying, take courage. Don't be afraid. Hear my voice. Do you hear his voice this morning through this text? He's the living one. Do you see that? At verse 18. And the living one. I died and behold, I live forevermore. Oh, Jesus died. You know why he died, friend? Because of your sin. Dear elect of God. Remember verse 5 from last week? Jesus said the following. or John said the following of Jesus. Verse 5b. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus lays his hand. Look, look, you roll up on Jesus. You roll up on Jesus and you see him. 
And he, it's so scary that you hit the deck. The police don't have to say, get down, get on your knees, throw your hands up. You just dive on the ground. And if you, I guess he fainted. And when you come to the one who is so awesome and mighty and destroys all his enemies, and his face is like the shining sun at its strength, and his eyes are a flaming uh, a flame, this one is whispering in your ear with his hand on your shoulder, don't be afraid. I died, but I'm alive forevermore. And he reminds you, I died for your sin, elect of God. But I rose from the dead. And I had the keys to death and Hades. Do you see that? What that means is he has authority over death and Hades. That means that there is no demon in hell today that can make one move unless Jesus allows him to. Now that brings up another whole set of questions. Why would Jesus allow him to make a move on me today? There's a lot of demons down here, right? They fly by me at 80 miles an hour on the palmetto. Or is it me flying by them? Nothing can happen unless God allows it. He has authority over death. He defeated it. And Hades. Whatever dark, fearful, horrible, terror movie you have in your head, whatever big, bad wolf is in your mind, whatever you fear the most is under the authority of Jesus Christ. He has the keys of death and Hades. And it was pretty horrible back then. Christians were being filleted alive. It would be dipped in tar, impaled, if you know what that means, on a spear, put in the ground and lit on fire as torches lining Caesar's driveway to his home. Thrown to ravenous wolves or lions, ripped apart in the Colosseum. It... There was some bad stuff going on, but none of it can compare to our God. He has the keys to death in Hades. He's the keys of death in Hades. So what does that do for us? It motivates us to pray. It moves us toward our Savior. We say, Lord, help us. In fact, you see here in verse 19, Jesus recommissions John. He says, get up. Right there for what I'm about to tell you, because this is for the church. And he explains in verse 20, the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands, they represent the church. We'll get to them next week in our sermon. And he says, I am the one who will deliver them. I am the one who will deliver you. Yes, through suffering. But I will do it. Friends, Jesus comes this morning, putting his right hand on our shoulder, and he says, Paul, Mr. Rise up. I am the sovereign son of man. I am spiritually present with my struggling church. That's us. He knows our condition, church. And the next couple of weeks, he's going to diagnose Palm Vista. He's going to speak his prescription, and he's going to give us that prescription. He's going to do the surgery we need. It's all going to be good. It may be a little painful. It's going to be good. And we're going to say, thank you, Lord, for your prescription. Thank you, Lord, for healing us. Thank you for healing these rifts. Thank you for healing my broken body. Thank you for helping me overcome sin when no one's looking. Thank you, Lord, for giving me strength to witness even when I'm going to get blowback from it at work or feedback from it online. Thank you, Jesus. 
We're going to be healthy and strong and shine brightly as those golden lampstands. And we're going to do it as we pray. See, here's the question. Are we praying? Do we pray? I, I, I must answer that question, no, not as much as I should. By the way, how do you pray? I think you can pray with your eyes shut on your knees early in the morning. I think the chances for some of you will mean that you will be sleeping three seconds after you begin praying. So you might want to stand up because you can also pray while you're walking with your eyes open. I think you can pray typing prayers on your keyboard. Some of you are very creative. As you're typing, praying. Why? Because your heart's toward God. Oh Lord, deliver me. Oh Lord. Some of you can pray as you're writing in your, writing in your journal. Some of you can pray in your car. You're praying in the elevator. You're praying as you're walking. You're praying as you're in public transport. You're praying in the emergency room. You're praying in the hospital. You're praying at school. You're praying right before you're going to teach. You're praying as you drive to a job. You're praying as you're doing the job. Pray, pray, pray. How do you pray? Guys, we had this wonderful meeting last Wednesday at my house. We talked about prayer and then we prayed. We saw that the Lord's prayer is a model. See me, I'll give you the stuff that we went through. You pray God's word. Are our prayers biblical? They are if we're praying God's word. The book of Psalms. Read a psalm today. The psalm of the day and use it to pray. We pray in faith because God gave us the faith. We pray because of what Jesus said to us. We pray when we see the vision of Christ and we think about it. Man, it elicits prayer. And we pray corporately. Let me just remind you. A week from this Tuesday, September 5th, starts our week of prayer and fasting. That Wednesday night, September 6th at my house. The Thursday night, September 7th at the Gabi Lanz house. Come to one of those two corporate gatherings. Pray with one another on the phone. Pray this afternoon. Pray Pray, pray. Just a moment. I'm going to close in prayer. And we've got some time here. We're not in a rush. There's no, there's no hurry here. We're, we're, going to, we're going to spend some time ministering to you. If you would like prayer. When, I'm going to close in prayer. Worship team will come up here. We'll stand. If you want prayer, come down. Don't be afraid. I've asked a few people here to be, just form little teams to pray with you. And if too many people end up coming up here, some of you come down that have prayed in the past. And let's pray together. Let's not be afraid to say, I need prayer for, and then gather with two or three people and pray, pray, pray. Because God is waiting for His people to pray to pour out His grace upon them in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Worship team, would you please come up? Lord, I pray that you would give us much grace. I pray that you would give us much joy. In Jesus' name, I pray that you would help us understand what you're doing, Lord. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for your mercies. Lord, if there are those here this morning that are saying, I don't even know how to pray. Lord, would you teach them? And they turn to Matthew 6 and read the prayer you taught us to pray. Lord, there are some here who say, I don't pray, Lord. First of all, forgive them of their, their sin of not praying. And I, I begin with myself. But then give them grace to pray. Maybe desperate prayers. They don't sound great, but you love them. It's like, it can be like that, that sinner in the temple. The Pharisee is praying this beautiful, eloquent prayer, I'm sure informed by all the Old Testament he had memorized. 
And that old sinner just said, God, forgive me a sinner. He's just beating his chest. Could just be crying, weeping. You say that you will hear the prayer of the humble and contrite and broken heart. God, help me with my son, with my daughter. Lord, help me at work. Lord, I can't take it anymore. Just come to him. Praise word. Pray in faith. Pray like your life depends on it. Knowing that it is Jesus who assures it and guarantees it. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and repent, I will heal their land, their hearts, their church, and let them burn brightly. Lord, we want to do that. Our lives are meaningful because of you. Let them burn brightly for your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.